the opportunity to grow in fellowship in Christ is truly priceless. And uh, as we as we think about what it means, we've this theme this year is um, going for the gold. And in the 28th chapter of Matthew today, I want to ask you to turn in your own Bible. We're going to be looking at um, the third of these um, times together of the appearances of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And it dovetails just uh, perfectly with um, some things that I have wanted to share with you about um, understanding and grasping, expressing the vision of the house. And it's very timely because the gold passage of Great Commission that we want to focus on today is in the appearances of the Lord Jesus after his resurrection is the classic moment. It's solid gold, crystal clear, Great Commission instructions. And what is really remarkable is how it adapts to every congregational expression across the entire globe and across the centuries with exact, precise, and workable, realistic goals. So in every congregation, in every season, in every situation, scenario, national identity, whatever it may be, the the church's primary task is to redefine its vision in every season in light of this great commission, the golden goal, and we'll get to that. So I think of it in a very in a very brief way, in a very concise way, as the understanding is that this chapter, the section we'll focus on primarily, is verses 8 and 9, and then verses 16 through 20. And this chapter really shows us a, a, a crystal clear picture of superb news for the simple church. And this gives us a way, I hope, to kind of, in a way, to channel so much of what we all experience in life, which is the, the yearning, the desire to see a congregational life really be something, really be what reflect the beauty and the authenticity of the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, we know we're faced with many obstacles in our world. Of course we are. And we are, every generation is. But our obstacles in this time are unique in a way to us. And even in our setting here in these beautiful rolling hills of Carroll County. So in many different seasons, we, we need to step back and kind of reevaluate and, and ask the question, why are we here? What is our purpose? How do we define it? And most importantly, how do we allow the, the totality of the Word of God in our lives to call us to fresh and life-giving, Spirit-empowered discipleship? So I'd like to ask you to read. I have the New King James translation still open here, so if it's convenient for you, if you're using the one in the pew, you're welcome to do that. And we'll read together in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 5 through 9, and then we're going to skip down to verses 16 to 20. Um, The angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, 
And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now that eighth verse, that verse, that seventh verse capsulizes the focus of the entire concluding chapter of Matthew's gospel where the center of action moves into the north of Galilee. And that is significant not only because it is the Great Commission, but because of the four gospel writers, Matthew is the most distinctively Jewish, having come from uh, totally, fully in every way, the entire Jewish life experience. And it is believed, historically possible, likely, that Matthew in the city of Antioch after the resurrection and after the disciples were scattered in Acts 8 because of the persecution that broke out of the martyrdom of Stephen and as the apostles were scattered to different places and began their, their ministries in full, that Matthew most likely ended up in that, that historic and uh, pivotal, that very significant church in Antioch where uh, the formation of a future vision for carrying out the Great Commission, took on a fuller dimensions in church life. Matthew becomes, in a way, of the four gospel writers, he becomes kind of the catechism writer, in a sense. He becomes the one who categorizes and catalogs and brings a, a kind of an organizational approach to the vast body of material that comprised the primary teachings of Jesus. And in light of that, Galilee becomes important for it would not have been the instinctive place for the Jewish mind to be centering their, their activity. It would have been back toward the temple, back toward Jerusalem. But this was the new era. This was the breaking out. This was God sending his word to the entire world. And the Galilee portion of these appearances of the Lord after his resurrection is quite, quite fascinating. So again, in that seventh verse, I want to complete that verse, Matthew 28, 7. He's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, the angel says, I've told you. So they went out quickly, Matthew 28, 8. So the women went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. A, a, a mixture of, of awe and yet perplexity. What does all this mean? But they ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Rejoice. That's the first word of our risen Lord to these women running together. After Mary Magdalene had had that first encounter, they've reconnected. They're running now in the message of the angelic commission. Go tell the brothers, go tell the disciples, and the Lord himself in his risen glory then appears to the women together. And his first word is still the word this church needs to hear, the word every believer needs to hear in a culture in which so much of what is vital for the health and well-being of human beings in the goodness of the gospel is being assaulted in our culture. We today need to hear the word of the Lord. If somebody were to ask you, do you have a now word from God? I'd say, I sure do. It is rejoice. Turn around and give that word to somebody right now. Rejoice. And the distinctive word that, of course, even though it is used sometimes in common 
language, not that frequently, but when it is used, many, many people in secular life don't realize they're drawing it from a, the biblical th- truth. The rejoicing is, that, is the action that is only possible because of what God has done. It is the word that the angels gave to the shepherds on the hillsides of Bethlehem when they were watching their flocks by night. They said, rejoice. It was the word of the Lord in the darkest hours of many people's experience, God bringing the word rejoice. We read it in our Bible study with our guys the other night in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, what? Rejoice. It's, It's an action word indicating that we're involved in responding to the risen Savior. Yes, we're involved. He could have said, swallow my joy. (laughs) Or he could have said, receive my joy. Uh, But he said, rejoice. And that, that is significant for all of us. Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, now the, the, the commission to go to Galilee is repeated now by the Lord, the risen Lord himself in Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go, go, and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So what we have in these um, verses of 5 through 10 in Matthew 28, with the ladies who were running from the tomb having having been sent by the angels to go, to go, to go tell the disciples, and then for the Lord himself to meet them, sets the tone for the entire focus of this concluding chapter of Matthew's gospel, where we'll see that the heart of this golden goal of the Great Commission is to go. It's to go and to make disciples. And here, way back in Jerusalem, about 85 miles south of the mountain we'll be looking at, these women are told first by the angels, go. And then when the Lord meets them and says, rejoice, because in his risen glory, in his presence, the king of glory was present with them, though prior to meeting them, him on the path, they didn't recognize it. And it's true for us in this congregation. We can say God's purpose for the New Testament church in our generation is that we might be the people of rejoicing because the King of glory, the risen Lord, knows what his purpose is and has assigned each of us some part in that purpose. And one of the reasons the Great Commission at the end of this chapter is so significant for the entire future development of all missions is that it fits, it is precisely designed by God to give every culture, every congregation, in every setting, in every era, even if we were in war-torn Ukraine today, if we were uh, in a, in a poverty-stricken area of eastern Africa, if, if, if we were in the remote islands of the Pacific, wherever we are, the Great Commission, the word of the Lord to go and make disciples among all the nations is consistent, it is relevant, and it is real. But again, the church has to step back at times and 
and, and ask, well, how will this be real for us? What, what does it mean for us? So let's go to that 16th verse of Matthew 28 with your Bible open, and let's read that 16 through 21 of Matthew 28. Again, I'm continuing to read in the New King James translation. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Quite intriguing. Again, this mixture of emotions that even the women had. They were afraid and yet filled with joy. The 11 were ready to worship him. Some, one translation even indicates a hesitation. Is, is it really him? Is it really the Lord? And it's notable that the 18th verse says that Jesus came then and spoke to them. And it's possible that even just initially seeing the Lord, says the two on the road to Emmaus at first didn't recognize him. Just as the, as the seven disciples we saw last week out on the, on the boat on the Sea of Galilee when he first said, have you caught any fish out there? Initially, they couldn't be sure who that was. Oh, but when he says, throw the net on the other side of the boat, John turns to Simon Peter and says, oh, Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. So there's this little gap of hesitation mixed with some doubt there, even among the faithful. And that, too, is a, a, a good parenthesis to stop and think about the fact that in all of our lives, in every congregation, to, to, to be aware that we're all vulnerable to those moments, fleeting or longer, where we feel doubtful, we feel puzzled, we feel perplexed. It's always a mistake to become self-critical of those emotions because sometimes those emotions are reflecting something more that we need from the Lord. And that's exactly what happened in verse 18. Jesus then came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Let's just say it out together, those two words. Go, therefore. Say it one more time. Go, therefore. One mission conference I was in some years ago, mission speaker that was just stirring our hearts to the very depths of our core of our being. Would you give your life to go anywhere on this globe for Jesus Christ? And he had us all in stitches laughing when he said, when you stop to think about it, God's name is two-thirds go. <laughs> and that, that stuck with me. I thought, well, that's true. He's got a point there, in English anyway. But, uh, and gospel is go. But we, we're going to see in the text in a minute that sometimes we miss the fact that the English puts go as the first word. It's not the first word in the Greek text, and we'll get to that in a moment. But say it aloud with me one more time. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To go for the gold for a healthy church, small or large, in whatever setting, in however it's defined, in whatever type of buildings or facilities that that church meets in, to go for the gold for God, is to be great commission driven. Probably nobody said it in modern times more effectively than Brother Rick Warren, Saddleback Community Church, when he said it's a purpose driven church. We're called to be purpose driven. You might quarrel with some of their methods or whatever, but the, the principle is true. 
And, that, and that's why, actually, again, large or small, across the landscape of this, of this great land and across the globe, God calls his people, just as those women met the Lord Jesus in his risen glory, running from the tomb with partial news. They didn't know it all, but they knew to go tell the disciples what the angels had said. And the Lord himself met them. The king of glory was in their midst. Think of the humility and the commonplace experience of three or four ladies running from a graveyard with with extraordinary, astonishing news, and yet it's a commonplace setting, and there was just a few of them. In every case in the gospel in the book of Acts, the glory of our risen king and the way his glory is given to the church is never defined by the size of the congregation or the size of the group or the setting or the surroundings or the paraphernalia of wealth or status or anything on any level of that. No, Jesus, the King of glory, meets them and says, Rejoice! For us to go for the gold today is to apply the Great Commission realities in our day to our time. And in your own Bible, when you look at those Great Commission realities, quickly review kind of the components of it, if you will, in verse 18 and 19. In the middle of that 18th verse, first Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, this moment in the mountain of Galilee is the declaration of why you as a child of God should never despair in whatever obstacle you face, and that's true for the church. We are called to live in the awareness that those women experienced when they met him in that pathway and that those 11 experienced when some worshipped, when they all worshipped but a few were doubting, That experience is the king of glory defines our mission. And that authority that he's been given that we'll look at too in the book of Acts is an authority that touches every arena of our lives. That authority touches how I spend my money, how I spend my time, how I view people in the family of God and in the body of Christ, how I see the church, how I... Respond to disappointment and disillusionment. How I respond to trouble and pressure. And a thousand and one other issues. The gold of the good commission, the great commission, is that we're under the authority of our risen king. What an awesome thing to think about that we have just as surely as they did when they were told to go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me as surely as they did. We have the capacity in our time, in our situation, in our circumstances to have a similar speedy obedience to the living word of God. Now, when you stop and think about this and you compare the the goes, the going of this passage, back in verse 8 and 9, They're told twice to go, go. And then down in verse 19, as we come to that, we're told to go. When you put those three goes together, you get a composite picture. (laughs) That uh, the closing, that these events of the appearances of our Lord and Savior after the resurrection, but in that 40 days before his ascension to the right hand of God that is shown to us in the book of Acts, that these appearances 
bring into clear focus the reality that carrying the good news of Christ is not for experts primarily. Now, it's okay for people to go into advanced training and get PhDs and scholarship and all kinds of things. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But we make a terrible mistake when in our minds we think, I've got to attain to some level of, um, uh, of, of some um, attainment in, of educational experience or of uh, life experience in order to be a witness. What is really remarkable, one of the things that stands out about the Great Commission and the meeting of these women by the Lord himself immediately after his resurrection is that he chose every believer who embraces his lordship and receives him as a carrier of his good news. And if you look at it in one way, you might say, well, that's a little reckless. I mean, that could cause the Lord a lot of trouble, couldn't it? If people are going around talking about him who haven't gotten all the proper training and don't have everything put in the right categories, that's a little risky, isn't it, God? You know what his answer is? You bet it is. And it's part of the plan. That is, the, the seed of the Word of God of the seed of the good new word of God is put into the hands of all kinds of ordinary people because the extraordinary power of the word of God will overcome the fallacies and failures of human beings. Now, we have trouble believing that in the church sometimes because we see the church's failures. We see the frustrations of churches. We see the frustrations people have with churches. And we can easily get tangled up in a kind of an sub-biblical view of being witnesses. No, Matthew 28 can elevate our view to understand that the unqualified, in many ways unprepared women who ran with a partial message from the angel to go and tell the disciples that the Lord is not here, we see the place where he is laid, they're the ones Jesus meets and says, rejoice! And he doesn't stop for a four-hour training seminar. He just says, rejoice, after they worship him and grab him by the ankles. And he says, you don't need to cling to me now. You don't have to cling in your own power. I'm here for you, the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. That reflects the heart of every child of God and the heart of every church that says, Lord, we want you to be supreme in our midst. We want to serve your purpose in our generation. And so out of that comes this, this amazing picture of Matthew 28, verses 8 to 10, where unqualified women go speeding off. It's hard to know precisely how... In, in all those experiences, they could have processed what they had seen. And yet they knew, they knew, the Lord of glory is here. There's an intriguing and somewhat obscure prophetic word in the 68th Psalm that I put here on the screen because I think it's so notable that in the middle of that Psalm, that great Psalm that starts, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered, that he describes the progressive unveiling of the victorious march of the truth of God that will come in the days of Messiah. And right in the middle of that psalm, first half of the psalm, in the 11th verse, there's an intriguing statement. The King James says, the Lord gave the word and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. But the text has a feminine uh, uh, noun in there that New American Standard, New uh, 
NIV, ESV, Net Bible, best translations, modern translations, uh, render it correctly this way. That the Lord gave the word and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. One translation says that God announced his word and the women got together and started spreading the news. It's just a beautiful, it's a, it's a picturesque flashpoint, if you will, or a f- foreshadowing into the, the, the beauty of those pristine, glorious moments after the resurrection of Jesus. When if we had been writing the script, we would have, we would have had the first people that encounter the Lord to have certain qualifications. No, Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene. We saw that in John 22 weeks ago. And then he appears to these women. And they become the carriers of this news. What an awesome thing. Just the sheer, if you will, friends, just the sheer simplicity of it. Um, it's such a remarkable thing that... Um, I love the way Charles Spurgeon described this about 150 years ago when he, when he talked about this issue of highlighted in Matthew 28 of the running. They ran from the tomb, then they met Jesus, they fell and worshipped him, and he said, now run some more. And then you and I get to make the Great Commission, and we hear the Lord saying, go, 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 go. <laughs> it's like there's a There's an element in Matthew 28 that though it's a didactic passage dealing with vital and and crucial catechetical truth in the early church, that the apostle concludes it with this understanding. In every way in our lives that God has gifted us, you and I are called to an urgency of giving the good news of Christ to others. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way, back in the 1870s. Those who are running in the way of obedience are likely to be met by Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Some Christians travel to heaven so slowly that they're overtaken by follies or by faults, by slumber or by Satan. But he who is Christ's running footman shall meet his master while he's speeding on his way. I love that. There's a sense, I think, what Spurgeon was capturing there out of this event of the women and then the Great Commission. There's a sense in which we're all called to be footmen for Christ and to walk in that reality that Hebrews 12 talks about in running a race where it says, lay aside every weight, every hindrance, every obstacle that would hinder our speed, move goal move with God and so the text I think calls us in both the women's encounter and in the great commission to think of our vision as a church in this sense first things first that is we we get on we get on with the task we we don't linger around the edges of excuse making we don't slip into the slumber of, well, you know, it's not like it used to be. It's what I think of as as nostalgic nodding off land. Uh, It used to be so exciting to serve Jesus. 
No, it's always exciting to serve Jesus because every single day, the Lord of glory has promised he'll meet you on your path. The Lord of glory said, oh, you may not perceive it in, in, in certain cases, but he's there as real and as alive and as powerful as when those women came and clasped his feet and worshipped him. What we saw there is the dawn of the new era of worship. What we saw there is exactly what Jesus had said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 14, when the woman at the well, in astonishment that he was having a very meaningful conversation with a common woman who just come to draw water, and Jesus said, if you knew the one... If you knew the one who had asked you for drink, you would have asked him. And he, speaking in the third person about himself, Jesus said, if you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Whoever drinks the water in this well is going to thirst again and again and again and again. But the, those that drink the water that I give them, it shall be in them a spring of water springing up to everlasting life. Now, now, the woman at the well goes on with some conversation about, well, no, wait a minute, you Jews say you worship at Jerusalem, we, we worship here. And she goes off on a tangent, and then Jesus brings her back to it in John 4, 21 and 22, when he says, woman, here's what you need to understand. The hour is coming soon. In fact, it... We're right on the threshold of it. It now is. When the Father is seeking thus to worship Him, those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, that would be impossible in reality until after Jesus bore our sins to Calvary's cross, shed His precious blood to save us from our doomed condition, and in the resurrection life of Jesus to give this promise of eternal life. And so, when these women grasped his feet and worshipped him, they, they indicated for all of us and for all time why the Great Commission here on the mountains of Galilee is so crucial because it defines first things first. Why do we need this? Zip down to that 16th verse again and notice in Matthew 28, 16 that it says that they went to the mountain to which Jesus had sent them. The New King James, to the mountain Jesus had appointed for them. Geographically, it's not certain, but most, most scholars believe that, that he went to the very place where the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount had been given. If that's true, that's Mount Arbel, just to the northwest of Capernaum, up in the mountains that overlook the Sea of Galilee. And this picture on the screen is, is, is just a great snapshot of that, of that scene, looking down from Mount Arbel into the Sea of Galilee. And let's say if that is where the appointed place was, could have been another part of the mountains. I thought to myself, as I was studying this, I thought, well, you know, Jesus often would go away into the mountain to be alone with the Father and pray. And, and as much as I love mountain trails and seek out a different trail every time I go back to the Smokies, I'm thinking, well, if I, if I, every time I'm in the Smokies, then Jesus certainly knew a lot of mountain trails. So there could have been other places that he went. 
many scholars believe that we went right back to that Mount of the Beatitudes. We'd call it the Mount of the Beatitudes. And, and wherever it was, we see that phrase again there in verse 17, that they worshipped him but some doubted. That mixture of astonishment and awe. But it was there even when some were doubting that Jesus came to them and didn't even break a phrase in starting that great commission. He was speaking to a few that were still struggling with doubts. How prescient is that for the church today? The Lord of glory is in your midst. Who is this King of glory? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. Open your heart to the King of glory because he accepts you with your doubts, with your struggles, with your questions, with your perplexities, and he comes to us with the good news of the gospel to make each of us carriers of this wonderful truth. Now, now he, he starts then, and let's just think of three aspects of this. He starts with authority, all authority. All authority, Jesus says in verse 18, is the reign of the risen Lord given by his heavenly Father. It is an authority in the Trinity that we see reflected in many aspects of the dynamic God-man journey. Think of it in John chapter 10 when he said, I'm the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down that I may raise it up again. In John chapter 17, he says to the Father in that high priestly prayer. In John 17, 3, Father, glorify me with the glory we had before the beginning of time. For this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. You did not send me into the world to, to bring condemnation. You, saw, you sent me into the world to bring life. And, and in his giving of this wonderful reflection back to the Father, what we see is that in the resurrection, that authority which was already his eternally, Philippians 2 says he chose to lay aside the prerogatives of it in order to humble himself to become man, and yet never for one moment did Jesus seek to cease to be God, the God-man, who chose voluntarily to lay aside many prerogatives of deity, humbling himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. Ephesians 1.22 puts it this way, that all things are now under Christ's feet. There are two words for power used in the New Testament Greek. One is dunamis, the, the, the actual word we get the word dynamic from, meaning the exercise of power. But then there's this word, exousia, which means the full right, the unhindered right to act. It is the authority of the Creator. It's the sovereignty of God. And Jesus, our Lord in the Great Commission, is saying to every church, in every believer, in every location, 
The key to you starting again, the key to you getting a fresh start in life, the key to you moving out of a place of complacency, the key to you breaking out of, of a place of despair is to start with the authority issue. Who is my authority? Under the reign of Christ, we can truly say this is our privilege. This is our place of refuge. And so we, when we get into the text of this Great Commission, we see that, as I said earlier, go therefore is the first, are the first words in English, but the actual, the Greeks were great communicators, and one of the ways the Greeks communicated was by the placement of words in the order of a sentence. So the, the controlling verb at the beginning of a sentence is like what would be for us taking a red uh, flare pen and underlining it or circling that word. And the, the first word in the Greek sentence of the Great Commission is not go, but it is the verb make disciples. And that's why we need to go. The reason we need to be ready to go, to be ready to serve, to be ready to move, is because we have this monumental calling to be disciple makers. When the, the first time that the disciples experienced that miracle of the great catch of fish way back when Jesus first called Peter and John uh, to actually become apprentices in this kingdom adventure, he told them to throw the net on the other side of the boat in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 5. They, they, they got such a great catch of fish they had to get their friends from another boat to help them bring the fish in. Jesus, Peter in Luke 5.10 falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. He sees the magnificence of the glory of the Son of God in action. And yet in a very commonplace, everyday setting. And Peter falls and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. His response was the, the very touch of Jesus magnified his own awareness of his inner need. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, from now on, you will catch men. The, 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 the phrase literally means you will seize living men. You'll seize men in their living state. It has the, it has the, the vibrancy of, of active life in it. And Peter is being given this task. You are going to be a disciple maker. Making disciples, then, in the heart of the Great Commission is the vital action that empowers all genuine growth in any true church. In the Gospel of Matthew, it becomes a kind of a, it becomes a central theme. One of the most characteristic verses that brings that to light is Matthew 13, 52, where the seven kingdom parables are summarized by Matthew saying, every scribe who now is discipled, instructed into the kingdom of heaven, is a, becomes a treasure keeper who brings out of his treasure things new and old. It's almost as if at the very heart of the Gospel of Matthew, in that summary parable, we have a template for the future church. And what is our template for a, a congregation like Liberty Church? Well, it's to explore God's Word. It's to expound God's Word, in, in, to have it on our lips, and it's to express the living Savior's grace in our community, express the life of Christ. Do you know, these, these three things 
are for all of us. They are, they are to explore God's word. They're to expound it. Not only those called to expound, say in a pulpit, but it is the living expression, expounding truth in everyday life. It is a part of that, of that unique thing about that makes the church so special. It's one of the reasons I've often said to you all, I'm a, I'm a churchaholic. I'm a churchaholic. Yeah, you know, have you the church in your life, Pastor Joe? You bet I have. I think there's anybody, anybody here doesn't had some disappointments about churches. Amen? And yet, what does the Lord do? He meets us on the path. And he says, he comes to us in our doubts. And he says again, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore, go, go, go. Make disciples. Go into all the world. It's, look, it's individual. Yes, it's individual. It's one-on-one relationships. It's what, it's what Christian Farmers Outreach empowers people to do in those, in those booths where the beads are used to share the simple gospel with every soul that comes to any of those displays at any of the farm shows or any other setting. It is what you do when you are encountering somebody in the workplace that is struggling through a problem and you don't come full barrel and give them the fire hose. You just give them a couple of verses or you let them know you'll pray for them and you keep praying for their soul and for their need and you, you open doors of conversation. To use an older phrase from a somewhat dated, dated now, but I remember in, in Florida in the 1970s that there was a phrase that was commonly used in, in the place where, where we were, win a friend to win a soul. Win a friend to win a soul. Simple thought, but it's still valid. It's the engagement of heart and life. It is, it is understanding. And part of, that, um, part of that exploring God's word in our lives and part of that uh, whole experience of expounding the word of God, being a carrier of this good news and expressing the life of Christ to others is that we've got to get our souls nourished. And so the, the, the Great Commission then gives us these nutrients in the soul of a disciple. And the core nutrient is nothing less. It's so simple. It's accessible to everyone. It's the teaching of the Word of God. It's the, it's the understanding that there are so many avenues of growth in our lives that can come about. You think about a challenge you have in your family or in your business or or in a relationship, or in a decision that you're making. And you're just sitting one day and you're reading through the book of Proverbs. And you suddenly come to a proverb that suddenly speaks directly to your situation. There is that that speaketh like the piercings of the sword, but the tongue of the wise brings health. And you suddenly, that a simple proverb, and it dawns on your soul. And you realize, that's the word of the Lord. The, the word of the Lord is, my words can bring health and nourishment to others. Or it can be something far more profound. Far, far more profound. Uh, the, the, the reality, of, the reality of, of Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access into this grace, and we can stand in a place of security because the grace of God in Christ has assured you that you stand before the judgment bar of God with a clean record because of Jesus. That's Romans 5, profound, heavy-duty doctrine in that chapter. And yet, all of this 
is part of the nutrients that Jesus was talking about in the Great Commission when he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so, in seeking to apply it to church life, one of the things that I've I love to do is to think of this Great Commission passage that we have before us in these last couple of minutes. Think of these verses of 16 through 20. Think of them like a giant funnel. And, and the life of a simple church serving the super Savior is a life of a congregation that says, there are some things we can't do. We wish we could, but we can't. There's some things that are beyond our scope in the present tense, whether financially or through manpower. But that that's only temporary because God always has more in store for his believers. He calls us to be believers who are never living in yesterday. We're living in the present tense truth that the king of glory is in the midst of his churches today and that every church that loves Jesus, no matter what they've been through, no matter how many roads have been difficult in their lives, they gather on Lord's Day, they gather when they assemble with an understanding that the Great Commission is always present tense, alive with the authority of Almighty God. And He's doing new things now. Isaiah said like this, shall you not behold it? (laughs) So I think of the Great Commission like a funnel, and I ask this question, To be a body of believers who seeks to honor Christ, we begin to ask this question. How does this, and I have a fill in the blank there, okay? How does this task, how does this program, how does this ministry, how does this idea, how does it flow into our calling for disciples to become disciple makers? What's really remarkable here in the Great Commission is that there are two parts of the disciple-making vision. One is to be a disciple, to be growing daily in my yearning to know Christ individually. The other is to be actively involved in disciple-making. And the astounding thing we find in the Great Commission is the Lord doesn't separate those two like a ladder of attainment, like until you're a certain level of discipleship, then you get to be part of making disciples. No, it's an amazing fact in the Bible. Again, God's glorious gift in grace is that he calls every redeemed child of God to have some part in the adventure of making other disciples. It, it could be as something as simple as, as, as writing a letter to someone or sh- sending a card or reaching out to somebody with a good word. It can be helping in a Sunday school program, being a volunteer teacher or, or serving in a nursery program. It can be, it can be a part of a mission outreach of, of any, many different types. But in fact, sometimes what we do is we restrict it too much to things that are typically missional. But every day, every day in our lives, there are people that the Lord is bringing alongside us who are potentially there for the reason that they need what only you can give. So remember those individual connections. 
And then when I think about this uh, funnel, I think about not only in the church, but in my daily life. Can I ask a similar question in my daily life? And that is, how does this goal I'm setting, or how does this thing that I'm seeking to do, how does it flow into the larger purpose of God? (laughs) And in the funnel for the church, we say, Lord, give us a laser-like focus on what it means to become disciples, fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus, and to be involved in making disciples. What an adventure, what a calling, all because the King of glory has promised he meets you on the path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that we would be in a place in our hearts and lives where we can step away from some of the immediate pressures of our souls, which we all have, and give us a perspective that, like that mountain view that Jesus gave those disciples, when he gave them that great commission and took them to that mountain, overlooking that magnificent view of the Sea of Galilee. And surely as they looked down on that Sea of Galilee, even as he was commissioning them, they, they could have remembered the miracle moments where, where they were completely desperate, having fished all night long and having caught nothing, and yet knowing that the, that, that the Lord himself said, put that net on the other side. Lord, just as truly as that was real for those men, and just as truly as it was real for those women, running, running, with only a mixture of astonishment and fear from that empty tomb. When you met them and said, rejoice, oh Lord, today meet in the hearts of all of your people. Those running to say, Lord, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, and I'm, and I'm a bit confused about some of this, but Lord, I want my feet to be fast with the good news that I've already got. And so, Lord, meet your people, meet us, and show us individually, Lord, and expand our horizon as a congregation to know what it means to really be a simple church serving the super, supreme, sovereign Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.